Sometimes recording a podcast isn't the, um, like, I just know everything right away. There's a lot of wrestling that happens with trying to figure out what to talk about sometimes. Yeah, and I mean, we have no shortage of topics to talk about, but sometimes it's just uh, the mood you're in or you're kind of tired and you just don't really feel like taxing your brain for like the 15 minutes or 20 minutes it takes to, <laughs> to do the podcast, right, Brian? Yeah, there's an on button that you have to have in order to like be in that mode. And I think some of that with when you look at creativity only through the lens of like, well, you have 15 minutes to go do the things, just do the things. It's like, it. it's not that. I think that's honestly what happens. I think when people see creative people, they go like, why aren't you doing anything? It's like, you, you might not be able to. It's not because you don't have, like technically have ability. I mean, Josh and I could turn the microphone on for 15 minutes and record the biggest pile of crap you ever heard of, but we technically, you know, hit the letter of the requirement by right. having a 15 minute episode. Right. I think, you know, the spirit of the intent or like meeting people where, where it is, there's like an interpretation that has to happen. And sometimes, honestly, it's that layer of interpretation that gets a little bit funny. Like I was watching this clip of, of Steve Jobs fielding a question from this guy in the audience where the guy was like real pointed, like, well, you know, what have you been doing the last seven years? This is like right after Steve basically came back into the company. The guy was going, I don't think you know what you're talking about. I mean, the guy was real like poo-poo on the parade type of thing. Yeah. And Steve answered it really well. He goes, you know what? He goes, when you're painting the big picture of something, he said, it'd be easier to make the app that just does this. He goes, well, when you're trying to do something that's like you sell eight to $10 billion of product a year, what is that? That's a much bigger thing. And he goes, and honestly, he said, the hard thing is that you're right. You took another guy. He said, you're right. Like, there are some things I don't know. There are some things that are this way because they are. When you hear one of the, probably one of the best and brightest business folks that lived in the 20th century into the 21st century, I mean, that you got to go and like these guys and gals scratch their head too. And they like, they didn't always know what it was either. You know, and that's kind of the nature of a creative, right? Like, so creative fields and stuff like that, like, it's very few nine to five jobs. It's very, very, very hard to find, like, we come up with an idea at 10 at night or we're like talking on the phone at, you know, seven in the morning or we're we're, like recording a podcast at nine in the morning or recording the podcast at nine at night. Right. So it's not really you can't really fit it into this box of like this normal punch in punch out type job and i think that that kind of sometimes that gets your mind kind of (laughs) jello-y you know (laughs) it's not that you're working necessarily more but you work at a different kind of cadence where sometimes like we'll be crunching a lot right brian like we'll crunch like we might work 12 hours in one day yeah and then there might be days where we're kind of like yeah we're kind of working for like two and a half hours (laughs) <laughs> and then we're like we're like talking and playing a game or something. Yep. But it's that recharge too. And I think a lot of people don't realize that some people in creative fields, I think everybody in a creative field, yeah. where you, you need that, right? I think about like how the assembly line came along and here's factories, this is how you do it. It was like the entire model changed from like when when can you work, when are your customers around, for example, and then it became here's what it is. This is what works for me. This is how we're most effective. But you, you made an assumption that people worked the exact same way or they had the exact same way to be able to get to work or yeah. whatever. Now, I understand, look, like not every job is infinitely flexible. A lot of creative jobs were would actually be more appealing and better for everybody if there was an understanding of let me give you the breadth to be successful and work the best way that you need to work. And I think that's kind of coming around a little bit, especially in a lot of 
field, especially because of the pandemic, people are realizing like they don't have to, they can work asynchronously a lot, right? So yeah. they don't have to be in the same room with somebody. And creative endeavors are, are have discovered this too. Now it slows down the creative making process. Be- yeah. Because like if you have if you're doing one thing, for example, and you need to talk to somebody else, now you have to sync schedules and you gotta email and text and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And look, the the, the framework of that say like, hey, it's due let, let's say that it's due in a week. Something a project's due in a week. Do I care really if the person like doesn't work on it for five days and the sixth day it hits them and they get it done? Some people would. They go like, Well, where is your progress every single day? It's like that's not how it works. Like if you're coding something and you're building it, that's one thing. If you're having to create something like in a visual sense, you might, you might not get into it until the sixth day and then you've knocked it out. And people say, well, why couldn't you do it the first day? It's like, well, that's not how the actual thing works. It's not how the process works. And I think another thing is it's a, a point of frustration with a lot of creative people is because of that kind of stuff. Because a person that's in, let's just say you're just like an office desk job, nine to five. It's like, look, I can do this much every day. And it's uh, they can break up their day into sections, right? But when you're like creating something or you're even when we do the podcast, sometimes we record an entire episode and we're like, that is just garbage. We're not going to we're not going to air that or we're not going to even try to edit that. Or we might do the intro, what, five, six, seven times. <laughs> and then we don't use any of them. We're like, OK, we got to redo that. Then it comes out better. But that yeah. might take. I mean, I don't know how many times we've recorded stuff and just like, ah, no, we're not using that. And sometimes you find like that, that was lousy. And then you're like, oh, actually, I, it, I pulled out this one section where Brian drolled on for 15 minutes and it's like, it's good. But there's a there's like steps and processes for that. And the, where like I think I try to tell people in the creative process is that it's not 100% efficient. Like if you like looked at a certain day, like, okay, I put in, you know, I put in a one and I got out a point two. Right. It's like, what? But then one day you put in a one and you get out like a 5.7 or Yeah. It evens out. It evens out, but you have to look at it not in like the little pieces, but in the larger concept of like, how did this actually work? And that's, that's where the story with Steve Jobs comes back to it. So what you want to have is the end end goal in mind. Yes. And just like, it's going to take X amount of time to get there. And you might not get, it's not an equal distant time every day. Like if I had, you know, a podcast to produce and edit and everything. I can't just do it one day and this, this day, that day, that day, that day, that day. I mean, a lot of times you can, you know, production schedules and stuff aren't like that. Um, Now for like TV shows and stuff, that's a little different, but they sometimes take their own sweet time too, right? Like, Like they have seasons and they work, they do a lot of production up front to where they makes it seem like it's seamless. Now, what's interesting is like when you watch a creative process, so bassist named Mike Chapman, who had passed away a few years ago, he came to town from Alabama, lovely man, and he, very giving and warm. He was also uh, the bassist on all the Garth Brooks recorded albums that you heard that were Garth Brooks. That was Mike. And Mike played around town in many sessions and produced some as well. And I remember I sat with him on a session. So when I was a young player, I asked him if I could actually just shadow him. He came into the studios at Belmont University and I just, I asked him, I'm like, would you be okay if I just like followed you around? And like, <laughs> I mean, kind of a bold question, but he goes, <laughs> he goes, no, absolutely. I would love that. I mean, and how gracious is that? He bought me cool. lunch. Yeah. Really cool. He had to clear it with the producer and things. And so I went two times to listen to him. And the first time I was just like watching him. He had basses. He let me play his basses. 
kind of see how he, his setup was, the process of working out the, the charts and things. There was one tune that came up and he played it. it so, I mean, it sounded awesome. He goes, man, I just, you know, he said, like, I just was not feeling that one. And to everybody else, it sounded great. But he knew, like, man, like, he had the technical ability to do it. And, like, you could have fooled me. This thing was awesome. But he knew that, like, where he was creatively is just he had enough mechanics to be able to get through it. And he goes, everybody has those times. He goes, there are some days you're just, like, nailing it. The other days you're just not feeling it. And it takes everything you can just to be able to basically, you know, yeah. and hit, hit the downbeat right and stuff. It's like, oh, wow. And when I when I started to see that kind of in other musicians and things like that, I go, okay, so there's a technical mastery that's important for those type of adventures, but nothing is felt the same way. And the crazy thing is that it's not interpreted the same way by people listening or admiring the art. That's true. And it's weird because to the person who you know makes the content or is doing that, you feel all that. Like you're like, oh, this is like garbage and I can do way better. But to somebody looking on, they might just be like, hey, that's just awesome. But you were just going through the motions, right? So yeah. you, you got to, it's a piece of yourself you kind of have to put in there. That's what makes creative work hard when there's, you get being critiqued. It's yeah. not like, I don't know, for example, like if I pay you a dollar for something at the store and I get 25 cents back and I either get a quarterback or two dimes and a nickel. I mean, it's still 25 cents. Like I met the need. That's fine. And that's, that's pretty transactional. But when you're talking about anything inherently creative, the only way it's good creative, creative is if the creator pours themselves into it and there's a piece of themselves, even if it's something where like it doesn't reflect who, who they are as people. Uh, Alice Cooper is a great example of this. Like he talks about the character that he plays when he does concerts and he said, you know, that's like a character like on the stage. It'd be like a Shakespeare character or something. That's the role that I'm playing. You know, he's not getting, he's not actually like, has like weird rooms in his home where he does all these no, things. No, But that's the part he's playing. And so he's pouring himself as a creative professional, as a musician, as a, you know, a, a cultural icon into those concerts. And so what you're seeing in the, in the professionalism of how his team runs, uh, how the band members interact with one another, all those different kinds of things are a testament to how he creatively put those pieces together and helped orchestrate that for people to have an experience. And Josh, you've been to his concert before, right? Yeah, it's awesome. So, I mean, there's a whole lot of work that goes into touring and everything. Oh, yeah. Like his concerts are like uh, like a spectacle, almost like a movie. There's like There's props, there's like big oversized things that come out on a stage that people control. There's lots of light work and smoke and it's, it's just like a huge event. And I, when I went to his concert, there was people that were like 13 all the way up to like 75 and everyone in between. So it was like every single type of person was there. I'm sure they all enjoyed it too. Yeah, it was really cool. And he does play like smaller venues, but the smaller venues now are where he can control everything more. So it's a better oh, experience sense. for everybody. You know, it's more ac acoustically uh, balanced and things like that. Yeah. And what happens sometimes in those situations is that it's it's better to book out a smaller venue than you add another show, right? Because the economics are kind of known that it's a little bit more controlled and there's less risk involved. With well, there were better, you know, it's better seats. It's not like a lot of it wasn't like, uh, you know, they weren't like fold out seats. They were, it was actually like an auditorium. Oh, cool. So it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. And um, another concert I went to was like that was the David Bowie concert in like 2000 and I want to say 2003 or was okay. it, it was his last tour that he was on and before you, before he got sick and couldn't tour anymore. 
But that was like that too, where it was actually in a huge uh, stadium, but they only cut they cut the stadium in half, and oh, they only okay. sold half of it, and so the tickets went really quick. But you got a better experience. You were closer to the performer. You had a better, you know, and they had, they play a role too. So it was pretty cool. When we talk about experience like that too, there is a very easy way to make a crappy experience that works well on paper. Yeah. <laughs> if you're looking at a number, say, well, you know, if we uh, add these extra hundred seats, that's gravy money. If we, you know, sell the seat, and it's like they can't see anything. They are like ninety degrees from the stage. And they in in a lot of performers i think and especially early on in their careers are kind of forced to do that stuff because they have that's where they make money right they need to like as many seats to fill as possible as big a venue as they can get and just cram them in there but you also see as a performer ages like with david bowie and alice cooper and some of the other people too i've seen they care more about the end experience like the person in the seat experience more than just the money at the front, right? Yeah, and that's Steve Jobs created Apple in the way that he did because he had that. He knew it wasn't necessarily like the most cost-effective way at the front. Right. Or whatever. But in fact, it wasn't cost-effective at all. Right. I mean, he was losing money like he wouldn't believe and working yeah. out of his parents' garage. And he said, too, like there are times where like, he said, look, I made basically, here's a great product. Now I'm going to force it on people. And he goes, he said, I've probably done that more than any of you you folks. When he did it well and did it right, he started with the, the end goal in mind. And I think with the creative people, like they, if you're doing creative correctly, you're, you're making sure that the work you're doing is connecting with the people emotively in a way that's going to say something to them. It's not a throwaway type of thing only for the dollars. Like you really want to make sure that it connects. If you're only concerned about getting something done, that's fine. But th- that... You lose the, Josh, would you call it? I mean, it's a creator the connection. Kind of the, but it's like, the je ne sais quoi, the thing that makes it special. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that je ne sais quoi, you know, the French for I know not what. It's just like, it's a <laughs> it's an intangible thing. But you know it when you got it, right? Yeah. And that's what, I mean, you can have two people that do the exact same thing. That like, even the exact same song. Let's say you have two singers. They sing the same song, but you could connect more with one. Because there's totally. this intangible quality sometimes with some people. Like, you connect to them as a human being. They're connecting more to the audience because it's not just the mechanics of it, right? Mm-hmm. And Because you can measure mechanics. How yeah. much breath did you breathe out? Uh, how many different little uh, notes did you sing here or whatever like that? What was your range? You can measure that. But you can't measure in the same way, like, did this, when this person sang the note, did you feel it down in your toes? <laughs> Yeah. Part of that is being human too, right? Like, yeah. That's why, like, a robot or like a computer could, it'll be very difficult for it to kind of make that connection with people because they're not people. Right. There's a relational aspect too. Like, I have relationships with music I listened to when I was young. Right. Or when I look at a piece of art, it's not something like, okay, well, you know, I don't have an emotional connection to my phone. Like, if my phone like fell into the pit and never came back, I'd go buy another phone and be happy. But all your you stuff's know, on the cloud, so... <laughs> well, that's true, yeah. <laughs> so it's really not the the phone. I know what you're saying, though. No, but, but it's, the, it's the memories or the, the yeah. other things that, that are on the phone that mattered. I actually rescued uh, Sabrina's photos from an old phone. It actually got dunked in apple juice by a, <laughs> by a friend's young child back in the day. And at the time, there wasn't a way to recover it. And 
I think it was about a decade later or something like that. Like we actually were able to recover it all. Yeah. And it was pretty awesome. And so she's really happy. Did she care about the phone? No. no she cared about the pictures, the memories and the things yeah. on it. So kind of a good unepisode, don't you think? Yeah. I think it was probably good just to kind of uh, talk about the creative process and kind of being creative and what it's like. Because yeah. it is a very different thing, right? It's a very different type of job. And I, I think a lot of people see creatives and, like, you know, you watch your favorite actor and you're like, man, I really want to do that or I want to do something like that. But I think that because you're only seeing the end result, you don't realize sometimes the process that you're going through. Yeah. And the, and, the em- emotional process that you're going through. Right. And I think people need to realize that the character that that person played yeah, it's, it's not, not the them. person. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Are there elements? Maybe, you know, but like hopefully if somebody plays a really nefarious villain, like they're really not like that in real life, you know, hopefully that they've just like been able to convince you that they are for that, that movie or that television show. A good one is uh, Giancarlo um, Esposito. He like, oh yeah, I've seen interviews with him and you know, everybody thinks he's going to be like his character from Breaking Bad or whatever, because he always <laughs> plays a bad guy, it seems like, but he's just really good at it. He plays a really good bad guy. Yeah. Yeah kind of fun yeah so, yeah i think right. it's a good one let's put a comma and just uh get on out of here before we just talk their ear off too much all right we're good all right folks until next time this is brian and this is josh for curiosity continuum Thank mm-hmm. you.